we, we don't make this religion up as we go. Alhamdulillah, we have the Qur'an, we have the Sunnah of the Prophet them, and we have a profound and expansive scholarly tradition that has helped us to figure out how to interpret those texts with integrity and apply them to our context. It's a profound tradition. Now, one of the great disasters is that we don't have a bigger connection with this tradition. Alhamdulillah, now in America, things have changed. English is now a legitimate language of Islamic studies. You know, when we probably started studying like 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, there were very few things that were translated into English. Actually, this is a pretty early translation. But there weren't that many things that were translated into English. Many of the translations were not very good. Many of them didn't really tell the whole story. And uh, over the last 20 years, many things have been published, and they've been published really nicely. A lot of translations, a lot of commentaries, a lot of publications, very, which totally changes the game. So now we can like really sit and study and learn. You can actually learn a very significant amount about your religion without any language other than English at this point. You know, you can uh, follow Edgar <laughs> on, on Facebook and see his pictures about his updated Shafi'i Fiqh library. Every now and then he'll put pictures of his updated Shafi'i Fiqh library in English. I mean, and, and every, you can see over the years how it's grown, mashallah. Like, and I remember actually meeting Edgar maybe 15 years ago or something, and there's like one text, you know. I was like, there's one text you use to understand the Shafi'i school. And then the rest of them, just over the years, you have all these other texts that come, which is amazing. So now it's like, but we don't have to make it up, is my point. Like, there's a religion, it has a way that it's been understood. There's ways that, there's medhabs, there, you know, a medhab is like an approach to understanding a, a different subject. And that approach, there's medhabs in Aqidah, for example. You know, I went to Al-Azhar after leaving San Diego. I'm be very blunt right now. We left San Diego in 2005 uh, under the encouragement of Shaykh Taha, Allah bless him. Some people were like, oh, you shouldn't study, you should stay here and just do activism and do work and stuff like that. And Shaykh Taha was like, no, you should go study because you can do more than when you come back and you can help and so on and so forth. Um, and we left and because of all the, I call them Aqidah Wars, maybe some people remember that. Some people I think don't remember that. But some people perhaps remember the Aqidah Wars. And uh, I, I legitimately boycotted the study of Aqidah throughout my entire education for like a solid 10 years. I refused to study Aqidah because there was so much drama around this issue. And then uh, I realized over time, I'm like, wait a second, what is going on here? Like, there's madhabs in fiqh, there's madhabs in aqidah. They're very well known. <laughs> it's not like a conversation. There's the Ash'ari school, there's the Maturidi school, there's the approach of Imam Ahmed in the school of hadith. That's it. And like the position of the scholars, for the most part, there's some debates here and there, but the position of the scholars throughout history is that all of them are and the sunnah. But then you have people who, that's the hill they're going to die on. You know, they're going to die on the hill of the Ash'aris are people of bid'ah, even though they're the vast majority of all of the ummah. And, but they're the people of, of innovation. And then they won't even say the name right. They'll call them Ash'aris instead of Ash'aris. It's unbelievable. Like really, subhanAllah, the level of ignorance is unbelievable. So these are madhabs and, and we don't have to make it up. Like the Aqidah is there. Why does it exist? It exists very, very simply. Why does this exist? Why do you have schools in Aqidah? You have schools in Aqidah because Islam was in Arabia and it was very simple. Right? It's like this is the, the Quran, this is the Prophet this is what they said, it's very easy, we're living here. Then Islam spreads into everywhere. Like you're spreading into the Roman Empire and you're spreading up to the Persians and the Hindus and even the Chinese, right? 
These are great civilizations with philosophies and histories and different belief systems. And now you have to be able to say, like, why do we believe in what we believe in? And how do we respond to the beliefs of other people? That's why these schools exist. Don't you think that matters? Like we, live, we live in America and we're exposed to so many different things. Don't you think it matters to be able to say why I believe what I believe and how am I going to respond to other people based within, within a grounding in our tradition? It's not, we don't have to make it up. Like it's all there. Even like the reform things that you hear in the community and stuff like this questioning on hadith and this issue and that issue. Most of the things that people become popular figures in media on, there are already issues that have been hashed out 1,200 years ago. Like literally you open the book, it's right there. It's the same argument. SubhanAllah. But we don't, we don't have like an actual connection to our, to our own thing. And then in fiqh, the same thing. Like there's approaches to how do I apply? How do I live Islam? How do I figure out how do I pray properly? People, again, go to extensive lengths to do something that you did not need to do. Like this whole idea of, uh, you know, you teach someone to pray and then they say, Allahu Akbar, and they, hold, they fold their hands. And they're like, okay, but which one's the stronger opinion? The Sahaba didn't figure out which one was the stronger opinion. The Medhebs for 1400 years, there's no stronger opinion. Just pick an opinion that's legitimate according to the Quran and the Sunnah, which is there, that's what the Medhab is, and pray. Like worship your Lord, focus on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, move on with your life. This is like when we studied fiqh, my, our area, my, I went to the College of Sharia, so all we do is fiqh, it make you crazy. Fiqh is law, right? Like it, it literally will make you crazy. You study your madhab, and you study comparative, and you study contemporary issues, and you study verses that rulings are taken from, and you study hadith that rulings are taken from, and you study, everything is rulings. That's one semester. <laughs> like Every semester repeats itself like this. You go crazy. But one of the things you realize is that all of them have their reasoning, and all of them came to the positions they came to, and the reason why we need to know that is so that we can move on. I need to know how can I do it? Now I can move on to other issues. Like, okay, can we get past where to put our hands in Salat? Because the kid in the high school left Islam and he doesn't know what gender he is. So like we have some bigger issues instead of these other things that people like and the answers are already there. Things are already there. So we use that, like they always say. Uh stand like stop where they stopped. Or like stand on what they stood on. Meaning you have all these people that came before us. They gave us the religion. Know where you're standing. And then from there start walking. But know where you're standing first. Okay. So this is, all of this is about religious education. It's number one point. Number two point is, all the religious education in the world doesn't do anything for you if you don't have a commitment to spiritual refinement. Which Sheikh Taha mentioned. If the intention is not there, the intention is not there. But even beyond the intention... We have different things that we struggle with, right? And we might struggle with them because some people, everyone's born kind of like with a different palate. Some, one person, anger might be more difficult for them. One person, generosity might be more difficult for them. One person, thinking well of others might be more difficult for them. Whatever else it might be, right? And then on top of that, we have the things that our families and our communities sometimes negatively impact us in sometimes positively as well but right now we're focusing on the things that we need to refine so you know the things we have things that we have to work through and so when we when we study and this is why like you know it's very difficult for me especially after the time that we spent studying it's like if I don't read for an hour or two a day I start to feel like I'm losing my mind 
And it's not just because I'm trying to learn something new. It's because I need to see it again. Right? Like I need to be reminded that this is what's right and this is what's wrong and I need to think well of people and I need to give people extra chances and I have to do that every single day. And if I don't do that every single day, I start to lose focus on it. Start focus on everything else. So this commitment to spiritual refinement also as a community, we have to commit to that. Are you going to be part of a community? We have a foundation of knowledge that we're going to agree upon. But that community now is going to have to live with each other. When you live with each other, you have problems. Like people, sometimes you're going to offend someone. Sometimes you're going to make a mistake. Sometimes someone's going to hurt your feelings. Sometimes someone's going to oppress you. Sometimes someone's going to come in upset and you're, it's going to get taken out on you. And like all of these things happen in community, right? But if we agree on certain knowledge principles and we agree on uh, an understanding that we're committed here to trying to be better. And I'm going to believe that anyone who's coming is committed to the idea of trying to be better. This isn't like some sort of spiritual tourism. I hate spiritual tourism, by the way. It's like a very common thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, you do this and you do that. And if you just come for, for the kick of it. No, you know, we come because we want to better our relationship with Allah. I want to actually fix things. And sometimes that might be really hard. For some people, it's really easy. Maybe they had a really good upbringing, their parents are really solid, everything else. So for them, changing things is very easy. Some people that have all kinds of baggage, it's very difficult. Like you're trying to tell them, look, you just need to get out of your head for a few seconds, they can't get out of their head. You need to control your anger a little bit, they can't control their anger because there's 50 things that happen to them in their life that they need to get through in order to get to a point where they can control their anger. Right? So, but we're all doing that together and there's a blessing to doing that together. So these are kind of like foundational internal things. Then the foundational external things are love and service. If you want to understand what does the teaching of Islam look like, it looks like love and service. Forget everything else. If you have to, like any, this can be like your thermometer to measure or your scale to measure any number of different things. Like I'm not sure how I should look at this, how I should look at that, how I should perceive this, how I should negotiate this situation. Sometimes we complicate things too much. We start worrying about power, we start worrying about politics, we start worrying about... Just, you know, like one of my teachers, every time I ask him something, he's like, it sounds like a good opportunity to serve. Bismillah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's the whole point. You just serve and love and serve and love. And if I'm not sure what I should do, I should just love people and I should serve people. And it's a lot more difficult than it sounds. It's a lot more difficult than it sounds. There's a reason why the Prophet them is praised as being Abdullah being the servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because that's, there's a serious education that happens in serving people so what should it look like? It should look like love and service do we define all of the details of what love and service should look like? no we just want groups of people who are committed to learning committed to bettering themselves the love and service should figure out itself the community, people will sit and they'll eat and they'll drink and they'll talk to each other and they'll understand like okay I have this issue, I have that issue, I'm struggling with this thing, I'm struggling with that thing and then they'll agree like okay let's work on this, let's work on that, let's serve in this way, let's do that and this will then inshallah bring great things to the community around us uh, inshallah so all of that is just introductory any questions? Bismillah okay uh, now we get to the part that I actually enjoy. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So one of the traditions that <clears throat> is a good tradition, uh, even though I have to go through the... Like when you read a book, first of all, is that we, we study through books. 
Okay, why do we study through books? For the most part, every now and then we'll do something else. Like for example, Sheikh Fouad right now is teaching a really important class. You can watch all of our stuff since the pandemic started is on YouTube and on SoundCloud. If you want to catch up on anything, like it's, it's actually almost to the point of being a legitimate, like nearly associate level education now. And it's just all there on YouTube. We haven't figured it out for you, but you could just go, you ask questions, we'll tell you which order to watch it in, but it's there. And Sheikh Fouad is teaching a class right now called Getting Our Mind Right, Getting Our Minds Right, which goes through the entirety of the intellectual history of Islam, which is extremely important. And we start at the very beginning, go through everything, all the different groups, all of the different ideas, how did things become what they became, how did things, you know, all of this stuff. He taught it actually when we first started in the Majlis, but it was before we were recording things. So Alhamdulillah, he's doing it again now. Um, <clears throat> so we, part of why we teach from books he, he made that himself, but usually we use books because if you study a book, first of all, it's what we saw our teachers do. They sit down and they teach books. You give like a lecture, if you're giving general lectures, that's good. There's different things the Prophet them did, right? Prophet them recited people the verses to give them reminders, and he helped them in the process of their spiritual development, and he taught them the book and the wisdom, as mentioned in three or four different verses in the Quran. But when you sit down and you teach from a book, what it does is, if someone really wants to pay attention, they get the book, they follow along, they take notes, they ask questions. Once they finish the book, they finish this book. It's not a question of like, you, if you tell them, okay, you know, we need you to help with youth group X, or we need you to do Y, or whatever else it might be, they know, okay, I studied this book. I can open this book, I can read it again, I can look at my notes, I can recall some of the conversations, I can go back and listen to recordings if I want, whatever else it might be. And then uh, all of those I can use in order to build. And then over the course of years, you've gone through a number of texts, right? So like at, in, in Orange County at this point, I think, mm, I, don't, I, mean, I mean, I did a list. We've, we've probably gone through like at least 20 or 30 books, word by word. You sit and go through every single word of the book. So you leave and you have something. Over time, you have something. So this is number one reason why we study from books. Um, and then also, we want a connection to these things. Usually, they're old books. I, have we ever thought, like, Ibn Rajab, you know, Ibn Rajab and Hanbali, rahimahullah ta'ala, he died probably in, like, I don't know, I, I'm not good with numbers, but probably 8th century, it's here, um, 736. He was born in 736. So, 8th century. 8th century is what? It's like 600 years ago, right? 700 years ago? It's a very remarkable thing, actually. And sometimes, I think the Muslims, we get accustomed to what we have, so we forget what we have. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a very remarkable thing that you sit and you read a book that was written 700 years ago. It was written 1,000 years ago. It was written 300 years ago. And there's a continuity to that tradition. It's a very, very important point. There's a continuity to that tradition. You have a lot of theorizing that happens in the Muslim community and outside the Muslim community. Of like, you know, basically this, this uh, everyone was wrong and then we got it right thing. That's not actually the way that it works. Uh, it was never everyone was wrong and we got it right. There's of course always things that were wrong. That's the point of a scholarly tradition. Is that you work through the text and you have a commitment to it. And inshallah, sometimes you get things right. Sometimes you get things wrong. The Prophet them taught us. The, the, the sanctity and the preservation is in the Ummah of the Prophet. 
that my nation will not come together on misguidance. So it's not unlike Abu Hanifa is always right. Abu Hanifa is not always right, even though you know he's great, and uh, we should study these people's lives. And Malik was not always right, and Malik was great. And Ibn Taymiyyah was not always right, and he was great. Ibn Qayyim was not always right, and he was great. And our tradition is not like two or three people. Our tradition is hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people of knowledge, right? So this is we want. We want to be part of this. We want to like really be like this is this is our inheritance, and that's what this whole book is about. This whole risala. It's actually risala. It's like an essay, an essay on the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu The end of the hadith says when the ulama that the people of true knowledge, they're the inheritors of the scholars. This is this is our inheritance, our our religious inheritance is the knowledge of the religion. It's very important. Like sometimes, there's basic things sometimes we get wrong. I'll give you an example. Sometimes people will see like someone does something and it's wrong. And they say, well, how can they do that? Aren't they a Muslim? Well, yeah, actually one of the earliest conversations in Aqidah was, what is the consequence of someone committing a sin? Are they still a Muslim? The position of the, the orthodoxy of Ahl-Sunnah is that people can commit sins and they're still Muslim. So one of the earliest debates, it's, in many of the debates they start theological, they end up political. So it's one of the earliest theological political debates, is you had people who, when they see someone else commit a sin, they declare them to be a non-Muslim. They're a Catholic now. And then they go fight them and stuff. It was crazy. I think things were bad now. Like things were, there, There's a whole lot of interesting things that happen in Muslim history, right? But th so the Muslims got this issue really clear. So this whole idea of like, well, how can so-and-so do that? Aren't they a Muslim? Yes, they're a Muslim. Yes, they're absolutely 100% a Muslim and you shouldn't have any doubt about it. It's a very important principle and belief. Right? So we have to get these things right. They actually have consequence uh, in how we build community and how we look at things. All right, so I'm going to try to begin. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, there's some introductory comments. I'm not going to go through them very much. The publisher's prologue, there's two things of import here. Well, number one is that the book inspires one to learn. And number two is that it clarifies to people what real scholarship looks like. <coughs> so one of the things that's important is that, first of all, we should be inspired to learn. When we, when we read real serious learning, we're inspired to learn. One of the nice things about good publications is that if it makes you feel some level of confidence. Right, so like one of the tricks we used to play on college students is that when we come to study things in, in college, halaqas and things, where do we always start? We start with like Dr. Sherman Jackson's writings. You start with like Abdul Hakim Murad's writings. You know, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, Hafizahullah. All these people, why? Anyone ever read Dr. Jackson? How many people have read Dr. Jackson? Okay. Dr. Jackson for American Muslims is mandatory reading. Like I'm, I'm not actually kidding. If you're serious about Islam in America, and you're serious about the history of Islam in America and where it's going, you have to read Dr. Jackson. Dr. Jackson is from a rare breed of people who Allah preserved and who Allah guided to be in a generation when people weren't really studying. And he mastered the Islamic tradition and he mastered the Western tradition. It's not so common, especially 40 years ago, right? But you read Dr. Jackson, like if you pick up his book, again, which is very important, Islam and the Black American, you try to read the introduction of Islam and the Black American, it is extremely difficult. Okay? Like, I read that after graduating from UCSD in the humanities, after spending several years in Al Azhar, being in a graduate program for Islamic studies, and I sat down and tried to read the introduction of Islam and the Black American, and I gave up. 
<coughs> it wasn't until our political Islam teacher gave us a very difficult reading in political theory. And then after that, I went back to Islam in the Black America. I could read the introduction. It was like, alhamdulillah, I leveled up a little bit, you know, it takes some work. And I asked him about it. I was like, Sheikh, like, why did you do this in the introduction? Why does it have to be like that? He said, because what I'm writing about, if I don't do that, it won't have respect in the academy. Like, I have to show people that I'm at a level of intellectual engagement that allows me to make the take the positions that I'm taking, right? And this actually is important. Like, this is all about point number one, that it inspires us to learn. Like, just because, so, so there's a paradox here. <clears throat> the paradox is that Islam is extremely simple. Okay? And it's also extremely complex. Right? Like, it's really easy to learn the basics of Islam. Someone comes in, they say, I don't know anything about Islam. I need you to teach me the basics. You say, Bismillah. There's six articles of faith. There's five pillars of Islam. We commit ourselves to spiritual refinement. And we follow the Quran. We follow the Sunnah of the Prophet. It's, a, it's the same message all of the Prophets had. Bismillah. You're good. Okay. Now you want to study that? You're going to spend the next 50 years of your life. And so Islam is always like this, actually. It's always, and, and this is part of the character of the Prophet The character of the Prophet brings together seemingly opposite things. So the Prophet they say about him that I never touched a hand that it was as soft as the hand of the Prophet And yet the Prophet they say about him when the battle got fierce, we would get behind him. Right? So I always like very, very soft. And very, very strong. And very, very simple. But very, very profound. And this is the way Islam is, right? So what happens is oftentimes we default to, oh, don't worry about all these things. Islam is simple. Islam is simple, of course. Be sincere. Worship Allah. All of that is simple. But you don't negate, like, from the beginning, from the time of the Sahaba. As you know, for example, there's not many Sahaba who gave fatwa. Like if it was so simple, don't you think all of the Sahaba would be giving fatwa? They would be saying, this is halal, this is haram. Like, المكثرون من الفتوى من الصحابة قليل جدا. Like the number of people who gave a lot of fatwa from the Sahaba is actually very small. Talking like maybe a dozen, two dozen people. In the realm of a hundred thousand, it's a small number, right? And they were with the Prophet Their students, they were known who their students are. Their students' students, it was known who their students are. And actually, in Islamic civilization, if someone talked out of line in religion, usually they get like imprisoned or beaten. Because people understood, if you're talking out of line in religion, it has serious consequences. It has serious consequences. So like, the people who know, they know. They would say, for example, when you go for Hajj, you take your fatwa from Ata ibn Abi Rubah, from the Tabi'in, who was a black man. And he was like of low social status, quote unquote. But he was the one, when you go to Hajj, you take your fatwa from him. No one else is allowed to give fatwa. So I understood, like it's a serious issue. So there's this balance, right? My point is, there's a balance. It's very simple, at the same time it's very complex. So we have, but, but our, we want to see things that motivate us to like, you know what, I need to study. I want to spend some time studying. It's not because I want to be a scholar. It's not, that's the wrong intention. You study because I want to know my religion. I want to understand my religion. I want to feel some level of safety and confidence in my religion. That I know what my religion is. I don't need anyone else to bother me about it. This is one of the things I'm very grateful for 
And I recognize that I don't share the experience of many people in our community, which is that I became a Muslim. I was Muslim for one year. I got married. Second year, I left. And I had good people who were around me in MSA. And Sheikh Taha was new in San Diego at that time. And Alhamdulillah, we spent a lot of time with him. And then I left. And I spent time studying. And I was no longer subject to the whims and fancies of random people's opinions in the community. Which is usually what we're subject to, right? Like every random person in the community has a really serious opinion on every issue. Everything. Like the, the wall and the carpet and the halal and the haram and the economics and the politics and the state and the, like every, it's amazing how everyone is mujtahid mutlaq. Like when you talk to the, to the to, to, in the realms of knowledge, mujtahid mutlaq ended 300 after the hijrah of the Prophet but in the community, everyone's mujtahid mutlaq on every issue, subhanAllah. So it creates like this insane amount of confusion. So why do I study? I study because I want to know. I want to free myself from this confusion. I want to just know, like, okay, this is sound. Why do I study a madhab? Not so I can tell everyone else what to do. I study the madhab and fiqh, so I know when I make wudu, my wudu is sound. When I stand up to pray, I know, how, I know that I'm praying properly. No matter what anyone else tells me, everyone in the masjid could tell me something, but I, I know that I learned this thing, and I'm doing it properly, and I'm worshiping my Lord correctly. That's it. Then if you want to do more, you do more, right? So we want to be uh, motivated to study more and to learn more. Number two thing that this book does, this is by the way, I said I'm not going to spend a long time in the prologue. This is how we spent this. <laughs> Number two now, is that it clarifies what real scholarship is. Ibn Rajab is really amazing actually. Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali. Uh, Ibn Rajab was a student of Ibn Qayyim. was a student of Ibn Taymiyyah, right? And he's Hanbali. Uh, meaning he follows the madhab and fiqh of Imam Ahmed and probably an aqidah. Uh, his writings and his works are very interesting. So like this is part of a collection of his essays on different topics. They're very beautiful. Like he'll take a topic, his, his commentary for example on the 40 hadith is like maybe five, six hundred pages. You know, he'll take the one hadith, he'll go everywhere with that hadith. He'll go into the hadith analysis, he goes into the Arabic language analysis, he goes into the fiqh, he goes into the spirituality, he goes everywhere, subhanAllah. So you get a feel for like, these people are really amazing. You know, Ibn Qayyim, he wrote, he dictated the entirety of Zad al-Ma'ad, it's a book on the life of the Prophet it's like four or five volumes. He dictated the whole thing while riding to Mecca and Medina. Like they just set out on the journey to Mecca and Medina, he's writing, he just says the book and they write the book down. And it came out four or five volumes. <laughs> like he memorized the, 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 one of the editors of the book. They said, and most of the hadith that he mentioned were reliable. Now imagine you're doing that off the top of your head with no resources. He said, but it's not, it's not surprising because someone like Ibn Qayyim memorized the entirety of Musnad Ahmad. Musnad Ahmad is one of the hadith books. It's like 30,000, 40,000 hadith. So memorize the entire thing, right? So you go on your journey, you just dictate the book. So Ibn Rajab, you, you read him and you're like, SubhanAllah, it's amazing. You see like the, the, the versatility of, of Islamic scholarship. Like we're going to talk about matters of philosophy, we're going to talk about matters of law, we're going to talk about matters of spirituality, we're going to talk about matters of, of history, we're going we're to go everywhere. And it's going to be like a nice, fun little outing. You know, we're going to go around the town and then we're going to come back. So this is just his, this is one hadith, it's his commentary on one hadith. That's his whole book. It's his commentary on one hadith. It takes you step by step. Uh, so you really see it, it's beautiful. Then translator's introduction, the translator is Imam Zayd Shaq, Hafidhullah Ta'ala. 
Imam Zaid is probably not a stranger uh, to the American Muslim community. He says some nice things in here. Uh, I'm actually going to skip them. You can read it yourself if you like. Uh, Ibn Rajab, as I mentioned, he was born in Baghdad in 736. And he moved to Damascus and he studied in Damascus. There's, there are certain centers of learning that were well known for the vast majority of Islamic history. Okay? So like Baghdad was a center for certain periods, uh, but generally it's a center. Damascus was a center, Yemen and, and Sana'a and Hadramaut, and then of course Cairo and Fas, and some of the areas in North Africa, West Africa, there were major centers. This is no, no, like in the scholarly community, everyone knows each other too. Like the scholarly community is always international. So people are always traveling, they're always talking. So sometimes you'll hear things that are complete nonsense. For example, you might hear things like uh, Abu Hanifa has this position on XYZ because he didn't know the hadith. Well, why didn't Abu Hanifa know the hadith? He didn't know the hadith because he was all the way in Kufa and Iraq and Malik is in Medina and Malik knew the hadith. This is complete nonsense. Like, you need to take a little bit longer studying the religion before you come to a conclusion like that. Uh, Abu Hanifa used to make hajj almost yearly, number one. Right? So everyone's making hajj yearly, they're talking to each other. And he used to travel all the time. And there's huge amounts of Sahaba who moved from Medina to Kufa. So, like, there's a, anyways, we don't need to analyze the issue right now. But the point is that the community was international, and people knew each other. Okay, so, uh, like, it's known. These are the major scholars in City X. These are the major scholars in City Y. If I travel here, this is who I should seek out. And even up to today, it works like this, by the way. Like, if you go, if you're a student, it's very, there's processes that you're supposed to follow. It's not like this social media world that everyone lives in now. It's like if you're a student, you go, you find the major institution, you enroll in the major institution. As you enroll in the major institution, you're going to find where's the major public lectures. You're going to go to the major public lectures, classes. You're going to figure out who are the most well-known scholars in that land. Then as you go to those classes over and over and over again, you're going to get to know who are their senior students. As you get to know who are their senior students, then you're going to find out where are the next level of classes that are more intensive. There's a process to it, right? And this is always, it was understood. What I'm trying to say is understood. Like Ibn Rajab could leave from Baghdad and go to Damascus, and within a few months he kind of understands what's going on, and he'll be able to, everyone will know who he is too, depending on what he knows and how he's able to hold conversations and so on. He passed away in 795 after Hijra in Damascus. Uh, it is related that he went to a grave digger a few days before his death and requested him to begin digging. When the digger completed his task, Ibn Rajab descended into the grave, reclined in it, then remarked, Excellent. A few days later, he passed away, and his body was brought to the same grave, and it was placed there. So he's buried in Damascus. These people were amazing people. Uh, so Ibn, uh, Imam Zaid does this. Here's the hadith. Read the entirety of the hadith. Now we get to the actual test. <laughs> The hadith of Abu Darda. A man came to Abu Darda while he was in Damascus. Abu Darda is the great companion of the Prophet right? Again, like there's, there's senior companions in a sense. Abu Darda is from the senior companions of the Prophet uh, As was Umid Darda, by the way. She was a person of great knowledge also. There's two Umid Darda, but still, she's, uh, she was great. A man came to Abu Darda while he was in Damascus. Abu Darda asked him, what has brought you here, my brother? He replied, a hadith which you relate from the Prophet 
Abu Darda asked, have you come for some worldly need? He replied, no. Have you come for business? He replied, no. You have only come to seek this hadith? He said, yes. Okay, so you understand the, the scene? Person Abu Darda is in Damascus. Person comes all the way from wherever they came from to Damascus to ask him about this hadith. Single hadith. He said, you don't have any business? I don't have any business. You don't have any other need? I don't have any other need. You only came so you can hear this hadith that you heard that I have. Yes, that's why I came. He said, uh, Abu Darda said, I heard the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, say, Whoever travels a path seeking sacred knowledge, Allah will place him on a path leading to paradise. The angels lower their wings for the student of sacred knowledge, pleased with what he or she is doing. The creatures in the heavens and earth seek forgiveness for the student of sacred knowledge, even the fish in the water. The superiority of the religious scholar over the devout worshipper is like the superiority of the full moon over the other heavenly bodies. The religious scholars are the heirs of the prophets. The prophets leave no money as a bequest, rather they leave knowledge. Whoever seizes it has taken a bountiful share. So again, so one of the things to, to note as we start, it's very, very important, and it will get emphasized as we go. We emphasize this knowledge and this knowledge is important, right? One of the things that's important about this knowledge is that you pay attention. Okay? I'm not trying to like make a shame anyone or anything like that but it's important to pay attention I'll tell you why for example it's okay like kids and stuff like that by the way general rule in the majlis kids are always welcome even if they disturb everything and like they throw off the whole thing inshallah their their presence is more barakah and there's more blessings in that there's forgiveness in that like it's not just the knowledge right this is spiritual side too the children are the spiritual side they're they're like little awliya they're protected by Allah and they bring great khair. So don't worry about children, uh, inshallah. That's part of why we have that program. That's part of why we're grateful to have this place that has like uh, a playground and stuff like that here. So people can have their children and stuff with them. And sometimes they're here and sometimes they're making noise. You know, Sheikh Akram Nedwi would always say that in his, in his lessons about preserve him. Like when someone would come and children would come and they would make noise or something, he would say, we're grateful for that because look how much commitment this person has to learning. That even though their, their child is with them and it's a little bit of distraction in that, they're still coming. Right? So that's, that's a great thing. <clears throat> so, but, but we have to pay attention. Why am I saying this? Because one time I was in a conversation with someone, someone very active in the Muslim community for many, many years, holds positions of leadership, has opinions on everything, so on and so forth. And we're sitting in the conversation and they're like, yeah, and then you'll see these people... And they'll tell you like, oh, the scholars are the heirs of the prophets because they're just trying to like make the scholars into this position so they can hold over other people. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> That's not these people who said this thing. That's the prophets them who said this thing. Like, make sure you're getting things right. And, you know, and the prophets this is not like some trick or ploy of the religious scholars so that they can lord over people and stuff like that. It's not what this is. This is a statement of the prophets and religion, true religious teachers will be the first ones to tell you, and it's going to come up here too. There's conditions to this. It's not just like anyone who sits behind a microphone is all of a sudden a scholar, or anyone who gets put on a paper. And this is a matter of very serious import. In our community, by the way, we're way too lazy with this issue. We're way too like, if we like the person, they're a sheikh. If we don't like them, they're not a sheikh anymore. It could change every two weeks. Like, they're a sheikh until like, I needed them for something, they didn't show up, they're not a sheikh anymore. It's complete nonsense, right? Anyone who has followers is a sheikh. Sometimes I'm like, subhanAllah, like, 
what made this person a shaykh? Can you just tell me? Like, you should know that. This, again, it's deen. This, this knowledge is deen. It's not like a joke, right? So I'm not just going to be like, oh, this person, you know, alhamdulillah, people like them, and now they're a shaykh. No, like, if they're a shaykh, I need to see that you spent at least, like, six, seven, preferably in the range of 10, 15 years of serious knowledge and commitment to, to study. Not just like you went to some lecture somewhere or something. Like, I need to see that you did something. You know, like, where's your degree? Where's, where's the evidence that you spent more than like a weekend? Like, weekend class people are not sheikhs. I'm sorry. They're not. Like, it's, it's alhamdulillah. Everyone is doing what they can do. They might be. Maybe if they went to like some serious weekend classes for maybe 20 years or something, they could be a sheikh. That would be great. But we need to see, like, how, how are we justifying this? You know? Um, so anyways, the, the religious, and then it's not just how much knowledge they have. It's like, what do they actually do with it? If they're being corrupt, if they're stealing money, if they're taking advantage of relationships, if they act in ways that are just lewd and ridiculous, and they say things that are not appropriate and all these other kind of things, then you can have all the qualifications in the world, but you just gave them away. Like, you don't actually fit that position. So, uh, the religious scholars are the heirs of the prophets. The prophets leave no money as a bequest, rather they leave knowledge, whoever seizes it has taken a bountiful share. This is narrated in the collections of Imam Ahmed, Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, and Ibn Majah, and others. Uh, there's a hadith of Abu, Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. One time he was sitting and uh, he went to the marketplace and he started to call the people. They're like, everyone, he's like, everyone come. The inheritance of the Prophet sallallahu they're distributing it in the masjid. And everyone was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> come. They're getting, they're like his inheritance, they're just giving it away. So everyone like comes to the masjid and it's like a, it's a lesson. <laughs> there's, a, there's, going on. there's a lesson going on. They're like, what did you, what, what happened? You said there's inheritance. He's like, this is the inheritance. This is what the prophets left. The prophets left knowledge, right? We don't know how to worship our Lord. It's the prophets who taught us how to worship our Lord. That's actually a really big thing. You know, in a life without guidance, in a life without knowing what to do, a life without understanding right from wrong, a life without, uh, I mean, look at the world that we live in. It's complete chaos. I, so, and then you have a book that is Al-Furqan. That's a great gift. You have the example of the Prophet in tremendous detail. Like really sit and think, look what I said about the collection of Imam Ahmed. The collection of Imam Ahmed is 30,000 hadith. You know how much detail that is? Like when we have the, the, the way of the palm of the Prophet and like the size of his hand and how much water did he use to make wudu and how much water did he use to make ghusl and how much did he do this and how did he walk and he walked as if he was as if he was going downhill and the earth was folding up underneath him and like tremendous amount of detail even some people are like the wives of the prophet you know how we have so much knowledge about the prophet in his intimate life it's all from his wives it's from narrations of Aisha the narrations of Umsana, the narrations of, there's all these people who are in the house of the prophet and we learn these things Chapter 1, Traveling for Sacred Knowledge. We have to cover a little bit. I know it's 11.30, but we're going to finish, inshallah, in a few minutes. Uh, and if you have questions and things as we go, you can ask them. Okay, like it's not a... You're allowed to ask questions. And if it derails the whole conversation, it derails the whole conversation. It's okay. Like we're, we're here to spend time learning and remembering together. And I know that it's a little bit hot, but inshallah, two months will pass and the heat will go away and San Diego is more comfortable than everywhere else anyways. I'll tell you a story, maybe it'll motivate you. The story of Imam Malik. Imam Malik was sitting in Medina. Imam Malik didn't leave Medina. Like, he, not that he never left, but he was like, I stay in Medina, right? And he had a study circle. 
<coughs> people came to these people, by the way, they spent like 18 years with them, 20 years with them. Like Abu Hanifa spent 18 years with the Shaykh, and then it only ended because the Shaykh died. Like he started at 22, he stayed with him till 40, he died. His student Abu Yusuf stayed with him 20 years. You know, they learned, they spent time. It's not like a rush. So Imam Malik, he's sitting with his students, and all of a sudden they hear that in, and there's a caravan that's coming to Medina, and they get word that there's elephants in the caravan. So when they get word there's elephants in the caravan, people in Medina, they've seen elephants before, it's really exciting, you know? So everyone gets up and they leave the halaqah of Imam Malik. <laughs> and one person stays. One person stayed. He came from Egypt. He came all the way from Egypt to study with Imam Malik. And uh, he's just sitting there. Everyone leaves. So Malik looks at him and says, like, what's, what's up with you? How come you didn't get up and leave? You don't want to see the elephants? And he, he just looked at him and he said, I didn't come from Egypt to see elephants. I came from Egypt to see Malik. You know, like, these people were... Like, you know, that's, that's serious. You know, like, it's, a, it's a serious commitment to, like, I want to... I'm here for this. I don't want to miss a single word. And that's why we have narrations, for example, like Hadith Musalsan bi Eid. That there's a hadith, it's narrated from student to teacher, only on the day of Eid. In order to get the particular narration, you have to get it on the day of Eid. Why? Because this is the way the students work. The Eid prayer would come, they go pray Eid, they go to the Sheikh's house, knock on his door. Can we hear some hadith? Can we get some knowledge? Like, these people were, they, they really put effort into preserving this religion, subhanAllah. So chapter one, you'll see it right now. Traveling for sacred knowledge. The early generations of Muslims, owing to the strength of their desire for sacred knowledge, would journey to distant lands seeking a single prophetic hadith. Abu Ayyub Zayd ibn Khalid al-Ansari traveled from Medina to Egypt for the purpose of meeting a companion because he heard that this companion related a particular hadith from the Prophet Okay. So again, remember, like this is not, you go to the airport three hours early, TSA harasses you a little bit, you get on a plane, they give you some food, you arrive in a destination, right? Like, to go from Medina to Egypt is a significant trip. And you're going to pass through deserts and it's going to be really hard and you're going to ride on animals and like people might kill you, they might rob you. Like, it's a very serious thing. He goes for one hadith. One hadith and go all the way from Medina to Egypt. Similarly, Jabir ibn Abdullah, these are companions. Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu, also to give it like, they're companions. Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu, he was the neighbor of the Prophet We have many narrations from Jabir. Jabir was like from the people who narrated a lot of hadith actually. Despite hearing much from the Prophet himself, traveled a month to Syria to hear a single hadith. Without hesitation, such men would travel to someone of lesser virtue and learning in order to seek out knowledge that they lack themselves. This is also something that Imam Zaid, I heard this about Imam Zaid himself actually. That Imam Zaid studied in Syria, right? And usually when you're studying, there's books you take, you read to the shaykh, stuff like that. And ideally you read the entire text. So there was a text that Imam Zaid had read with a teacher, but he didn't finish it because he had to leave. And Imam Dawood, Dawood Yasin, came a little bit later than Imam Zaid, and he knew many of the same teachers. He ended up reading that book with the, with the teacher. So someone told me this themselves, that they witnessed it themselves, that uh, they were at Zaytuna and they saw Imam Zaid sitting with Imam Dawood one time, and they were sitting and they were reading, and he's like, after he asked questions and stuff, he found out that this was the text that Imam Zaid was reading to the Shaykh, but never finished it, and Imam Dawood finished it. So now he went to Imam Dawood and he was reading, he was reading it with Imam Dawood to finish it. And if you know the people involved, like Imam Zaid is much more senior than Imam Dawood, right? Much more senior. 
and knowledge and, and, and station and practice and all of these different things. He's much senior. But he read the, he read the book. I'm going to go and read the book from the person. So they wouldn't. This was like, it wasn't. They, they also say, like, Qadiman, they would say, the, in, the, in the past, they would say, you don't get knowledge until you take from those who are less than you, quote unquote. Like, Akhlun Kibar on Sigar. That someone has a higher position, but someone else took something that they didn't get. So they go to them and they learn it. Because it's out of the humility of learning. So that's what he's referring to here. A striking example of this sort of journey is what Allah relates in the Quran about Sayyidina Musa salam and his journey with his young companion. If there ever existed a person who had no need to travel to seek knowledge, it was Musa salam, for Allah had spoken to him and given him the Torah in which all divine principles had been revealed. Right? Like Allah spoke to Musa. He doesn't need to. I mean, like, <laughs> what more is there to have? Right? You're a prophet, Allah spoke to you. Uh, but what happened? Still, when Allah informed him of a man named Khadr, who had been favored with knowledge, Musa inquired about meeting him, and then set out with his young companion to find this Khadr. Here it's Khadr. There's conversation on it, but from what I recall, Khadr is more uh, preponderant. As Allah the Exalted said, And behold, Musa said to his young companion, I will not cease until I reach where the two seas meet, or I shall spend an exceptionally long time traveling. It's in Surah Al-Kaf, right? 18th chapter of the Quran. Uh, Allah then informs us that upon meeting Khadr, Musa asked of him, May I follow you in order that you may teach me of the knowledge you have been given. So Musa comes to this person, tells him, Can I follow you so I can learn from you? It's amazing, actually. I mean, if you really, some of these stories, you have to really sit and think about them for a little bit. It's really amazing. That's the level of humility, the level of desire to know. And details of their venture are related in the Book of Allah and the well-known hadith of Ubayy ibn Ka'bah, which is related in Bukhari and Muslim. So the point here, he's not getting into the story, right? But the point is, this idea, someone has something of knowledge that I don't have. I go to get it. Right? I, I want to go and get it. Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu used to say, Ibn Mas'ud, again to give it the context, Ibn Mas'ud is, again from the senior companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, senior scholars of the companions. Uh, the school of Abu Hanifa largely goes back to Ibn Mas'ud and Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. Uh, so Ibn Mas'ud is very knowledgeable. He says, I swear by Allah, besides whom there is no other deity, no chapter of the Quran has been revealed, except that I know where it was revealed. No verse from the Book of Allah has been revealed, except that I know why it was revealed. Yet if I knew of anyone more learned than me in the Book of Allah, I would make every effort to reach him. I would make every effort to reach him. Ibn Mas'ud. We'll do one more and then we'll stop. Abu Darda said, Abu Darda, right? It's the one who narrated the hadith that we're talking about, Abu Darda. If I were unable to explain a verse in the Book of Allah and could not find anyone to explain it to me, except a man in Bark and Ghimad, I would journey to him. Barq al-Ghimad is the farthest corner of Yemen. Masruq, Masruq was from the scholars of the Tabi'een, the students of the Sahaba, students and commandments of the Prophet He went from Kufa to Basra uh, to ask a man about a Qur'anic verse. He failed, however, to find in him knowledge about the verse. But while there, he was informed of a knowledgeable man in Syria. He then returned to Kufa, from which point he set out to Syria, seeking knowledge of the verse. Yeah, so just keep going, trying to find knowledge of the verse. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us tawfiq. Inshallah we'll continue in, until we finish. Oftentimes people are like, so how many sessions is it going to take? I don't know. It's going to take however how many sessions it takes. Uh, I would guess that 
um, depending on the length of my tangents and stuff. It'll probably take like, I would, my guess would be five or six sessions. Probably five or six sessions and then we'll finish. We'll go on to something else, inshallah. Anyone have any questions or comments or anything they would like to say, say or share or um, reflections, observations, things that they thought of that might be beneficial for others, stuff like that? You don't have anything? Yes, Shaykh Dhan. community in the end is the people who are in it. So it's very important that 
the people who come regularly uh, are being good to one another, asking about one another, getting to know each other. Don't only talk to the people you know, talk to the people that you don't know. Don't let people sit by themselves without, I mean, if they look like they want some personal time, that's fine, but, <laughs> but uh, it's good to like talk to each other and, and uh, try, this is part of our development also, is to learn how to get along with each other and learn how to be with one another. And everyone will have different tendencies and personalities and so on and so forth, but at least the basic rights of brotherhood and sisterhood that we have concern for one another, we make dua for each other, we try to have good character with each other. It's very, very important. Uh, we can't do this whole thing by ourselves. We need each other, so it's very important that we try to do that. Inshallah. That's why we have breakfast. On Sunday night, Sunday night we have Majlis in Orange County. Uh, we, alhamdulillah, now we always have dinner. So like, lately it's been more, like usually maybe 100 people come and they have dinner and people talk to each other and stuff. It's really nice, alhamdulillah. So don't just, I mean if you just want to come for the lesson, that's fine, but it's good to come have breakfast, talk to each other, stuff like that. It's a good opportunity. Anyone else have anything? Alhamdulillah. Subhanakum and bihamdikum. Shalom Allah. Ilaha ilaha. Astaghfirullah. Bismillah. 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 They would come and they would say, Marhaban, Marhaban, Yuwasiyati Rasulidahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They would like, welcome, welcome to the inheritance of the Prophet. Like you've come to the inheritance of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is a really amazing thing. So uh, we should have glad tidings about that. We should be excited about that. I want to extend a special word of gratitude to uh, Shireen and Sheikh Fuad. Um, who, it's very strange actually for me to sit here and teach and then to not ask Sheikh Fuad to say something but like I don't want to keep everyone too long also at the same time uh, but maybe you can just Kenny Makeda like a few minutes Hashem I'm just happy to be here with everyone and uh, I look forward to inshallah bringing my family brought my kids so alhamdulillah uh, part of it for us also is just uh, to learn that being in about with one another is uh, the objective that's oftentimes lost uh, in these uh, discussions on what it means to actually do religion properly. So just in us coming together and being with each other and you know, allowing for everyone's experiences to permeate the room and allow us all to grow together in this uh, collective to me, um, has been the way in which I have learned uh, significantly uh, throughout my life in this religion, in ways that I have grown, in ways that, alhamdulillah, has helped me raise my children uh, to the place that they're at right now, and inshallah, we can continue to do this collectively as a community together. We ask Allah to bring tawfiq to this endeavor, inshallah, and to all of you, and many more gatherings. I mean, uh, it's, he's not going to be happy, but, uh, you know, like in the, um, in the religious scene, sometimes there's like a lot of posturing and a lot of positioning and a lot of making of claims and people putting themselves in power and authority and stuff like that. And Sheikh um, Fouad is someone who was in our Southern California community, like under the radar. And alhamdulillah, we met like maybe, I don't know how many years now, six, seven years ago probably. 
and uh, maybe more than that, eight maybe. And um, like people didn't know him. Like they, they didn't know. Like he's just doing his thing, and that's actually what you're supposed to do as a student of knowledge, as a person of knowledge. You know, you don't put yourself in positions and stuff like that. And then over the last years, we got to know each other and got to learn more about the time that he spent studying, which was very significant with very senior people. And we've had chances to travel together, we've had chances to read together, we've had chances to discuss a lot of different things. So, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, we're very grateful that the Majlis said he's a regular instructor and uh, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from all of us, inshallah.